You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Welcome 2021, without the former guy. Good riddance. Moving on. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with my friend, Greg Hurwitz, the best-selling author of Prodigal Son, his latest installment in the Orphan X series. He's also a political activist and writer for The Bulwark, as well as a major supporter of the Democratic Coalition, which is the political committee I run as the executive director. What can I say about Greg? He's a renaissance man, a resistor, a Hollywood screenwriter, and most of all, he's a thought leader. And in this extended interview, we discussed his new book, his new movie with Jason Momoa, what's to come for Orphan X, spoiler alert, there's a pilot. And of course, Greg shared some of the keen political insights that helped him write some of the most effective messaging for Democratic candidates in 2020. Take a listen to my interview with Greg Hurwitz. I'm here with number one international best-selling author, multi-time New York Times bestseller, Greg Hurwitz, whose newest book in his Orphan X series, entitled Prodigal Son, is topping the charts on Audible's fiction list right now. Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the pod. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, Scott. It's uh, So before we talk about your book, I hope this is all right, which, which I'm sure you know your cult following is lined up to learn more about. I, I wanted to chat with you about your political activism, we can call it, I guess. It, it, it sound good? Sounds fine with me. Well, your readers might not know that you write a column at The Bulwark, uh, which calls itself a, a website providing political analysis and reporting free from the constraints of partisan loyalties or tribal pre- prejudices. Um, what first drew you into the political sphere in general, and when did you start getting more involved in it? Um. I think before Donald Trump's election, I largely thought that democracy would be okay without me. Uh, And so after he was elected, I started to dive in to figure out uh, how I could get involved helping Democrats uh, with storytelling, which is as a a novelist, as a screenwriter, I've written comics. That's that's sort of an area that that I like and, you know, have engaged in a lot. But even more than that, I was very interested in the psychological underpinnings of storytelling. You know, one of the things and persuasion, how you can make people change their minds. What are persuasive messaging techniques? And one of the things that we do as novelists is that we always want to sort of pull on the the face masks of other characters and see the world through their eye holes. And so early on, I realized that one of the things I could do most effectively was to go across the aisle or to outreach to other kinds of voters, you know, evangelical voters, um, you know, white suburban women in Ohio, right, military leadership, all the way around the wheel and try and get a better understanding um, of where their value set was and how to talk to them and how to strain my value set, which is a liberal value set through language and through values that make sense to them so that we can widen out our tent. Um, And so I got involved more and more with that effort. Um, We worked with 30 candidates at the midterms, all purple and red states. I wasn't interested with working candidates in in deep blue districts, Uh, fantastic candidates. Um, And the candidates that we worked with and worked on messaging with, 21 of them won, which was wonderful. Obviously, we can't take credit because we're working with 
you know, amazing candidates like Dean Phillips and Lucy McBath and Lisa Slotkin and Haley Stevens and, you know, the best of the best. And so we were, we were taking and sharing a lot of this messaging and then teaching others how to strain that through. And so the bulwark for me was largely an attempt for me to go and talk to, it was important for me to get in touch with the David Fromms and the Rick Wilsons and the Lincoln Projects and the Sarah Longwells and the Bill Crystals and to make sure that we were talking to, to voters who we needed, who we needed to lock down. And so I've, I've, I wrote a series of op-eds for the bulwark. Um, I didn't want to just write, you know, within in, in publications that are read by people who agree with us already, because a lot of what I was trying to do was forge into new new voters and to try and figure out ways to make good faith arguments to win them across and to understand that the value set that we that we hold as liberals um, can be talked about through conservative um, language and a conservative understanding that lets them then make a good faith. Uh, choice whether they want to whether we represent you know some of their interests and values better than Donald Trump and the Trump Republican Party does. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And, you know, I guess once you started working on that kind of writing of political messaging, what was it that you learned about people in regards to how you message them? Because it was such an interesting time being able to, to work with you on, on different projects. And it, 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 you had this kind of unique way of, of looking at things where you can, you can analyze them and look at the common sense aspects and not go into the uh, catchphrases and slogans and get stuck in the messaging traps that we always do as the democratic party. And so I was just curious as to how, how did you learn how to, how to obviously you're a brilliant writer, but like, how did you do learn that uh, writing the political messaging that you do? Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things is when we're writing, we always want to avoid cliches, right, in our own writing. And part of that is is this shorthand that we have with slogans and things that don't make sense. I remember the you know I grew up in the '80s. I was the only my parents we were the only Democratic family when I was growing up uh, in. Uh, Silicon Valley before .com, let's just say. So it was pretty conservative. And I remember whenever Republicans talked about family values, like my, my, you know, the hair would go up on the back of my neck. It was like a code word for, for me for all this sort of smarmy other stuff that I didn't adhere to. And when I got older and had a family and had kids, you know, got married, it was, there was this funny point where I was like, hey, I should have family values. Like, what's wrong with family values? The, the, the phrase had been so corrupted um, in my mind by a particular um, type of political messaging that it didn't represent something I could relate to, and all my armor went up. And what I realized was I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to the ways that, that we talk on our side of the aisle that make people's armor go up across the aisle. Um, what are those catchphrases? What are those things? And the other the other thing is that you know I have a big interest in psychology. I studied psychology as an undergraduate, and conservatives versus liberals have very different um, big five personality trait profiles. Um, 
a lot of you are familiar with probably the Myers-Briggs test, and that's sort of the cliff notes to Big Five. And so to give you an example, liberals are hiring in a trade called openness, right? That's why a lot of creatives, like at least, you know, I think the best creatives, you look at the, 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 the star-studded lineup that Biden can produce versus, you know, who don't, who will show up and perform for Donald Trump, and you can't really compete with that. It doesn't mean better. It's just a difference. Um, and we tend to be higher in trait empathy, uh, but we tend to mistake that for being superior. Like we could just educate people into higher empathy. And conservatives are higher in the big five structure with a trait that's called conscientiousness, um, which breaks down into sort of um, diligence, orderliness, like that stereotype of the clean cut Mitt Romney conservative Republican. Um, and that's a very positive and powerful and necessary trait. It codes, it's highly correlated with better health, longer lifespan, more stable marriages, uh, better finances. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I talked to Democrats about was, look, before we go across the aisle and try to message people into a higher empathy argument that we're trying to make about something like healthcare, let's keep in mind they're doing just fine with their you know, stable marriages and longer lifespans, you know, first of all. So it's, there's something that's condescending when we're asking them to take on our policies or platforms from a value structure that doesn't, that just isn't how they hear. It's, it's a, it's a language they don't speak. And so instead, what was really important to me was to be able to phrase arguments rather than from empathy, but to a higher conscientious argument for the same thing. So instead of coming in and saying universal healthcare is a, is a right, right? People might recoil from that. You know, don't you care about Jimmy Kimmel's kid, right? He's suffering. He's having a hard time. We come in with high empathy and they have empathy. It's just lower in their value structure. And so instead, we, we were working with candidates to say, look, you know, that connects. That's a language that a lot of liberals speak when we're dealing with libertarians, you know, country club Republicans, other people. We, we should talk about, you know, the, the financial superiority of offering a baseline of medical care. Right. Like to say the average cost of an ER visit is, you know, twelve hundred and thirty three dollars. The average cost of a vaccination is nineteen dollars, like as dollars and cents Republicans or moderates, which makes more sense to you. And also to talk about the higher entrepreneurism rates we see in everywhere from Denmark to Canada in countries that, that provide health care so that people can make choices for their own freedom and their future and build their own family. And so for me, it's not, I don't want to have a moral fight about you're not empathetic and we're better than you. Like that's all the noise that gets in the way because it got in the way for me when it came from the other direction. What I'm interested in is outcome of making an argument in whatever language people can hear to meet them wherever they are to understand why I believe liberal policies and platforms make sense every which way. It makes sense to build a smarter capitalism all the way down and all the way back up again. And if we can talk to them in that language, we can win voters. And so I set out to, to, to really do and approach that. And we talked to you know, leadership candidates. That's a lot of what we did in our work together also was, was messaging that spoke to people in a language they could hear and in a value set that they understand. And it's not... It's not sort of putting lipstick on, on a pig to try and sell something to people they don't want. It's remaining true to our core values. It's just being very conscious to talk about them in ways that people are more open to hearing. Our hardcore political junkie listeners probably have one question for you. If they saw the glowing profile that a Hollywood reporter wrote about you, I mean, obviously, I think that they lowballed the number there in regards to the work that you've done for Democratic Party and whatnot. 
Um, but one one question that builds from from that in regards to the content you created a, a, across the spectrum on the political uh, scale, uh, tell me what is it really like working with the Lincoln Project and Republicans in general when it was, you know, this chasm when they were divided and. You know, I guess I guess it was hard to see who could trust who, and and so you kind of, you know, you knew some of the the good players like David Frum, Rick Wilson, uh, etc. But like, what got you into into that? Like, how were you able to actually work with them? And at the same time, what was it like working with them? You know, this cycle in twenty twenty. Hmm. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, so I love. I have very diverse friends, you know, to begin with, and I have very diverse consultants on my books. I mean, my, I, I have in my Rolodex, I have former spies, Navy SEAL 60 gunners. You know, one of my best friends is a born again, Christian demolition breacher, you know? Um, and so my, my, I think that we are strongest when we have a true diversity around us in every which way, right. Of all different ethnicities, all different political orientations, as long as it's, as long as people are, 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 are good faith, right? Um, I'm not talking about the most extreme people on either pole. And so I think I came to this pretty comfortably having friends and interviewing ever, you know, cops, military, you know, my book tours are equally through red states and blue states, right? I try to write without an ideology. I don't write propaganda. I want to present characters as truly as I can. And so I was pretty comfortable, but, you know, look, I ventured out a lot. I went on, I went on the Dave Rubin show. Uh, you know, I've been on Jordan Peterson is a, is a longtime um, friend of mine. I went on his show multiple times. I went anywhere that I could go to talk to any voters who I could, even with people who I disagreed with vehemently um, and um, to make headway and, and to try and be heard. And also most importantly, to try to understand, because I don't think you can, ask people to change their opinion without fully understanding and trying to embody what it is that they think and to try to not get distracted with stuff on the surface that I could just react to, but to really go all the way down. I had, you know, three hour conversations at times with, with people who, who with whose views I vehemently disagreed. I had conversations with people who are actual members of the alt-right, not sort of the media coined alt-right to really figure out, because for me, any way that you cut it, it's a plus, right? If you can talk to somebody and understand them, the aim is always to sort of to to understand them fully in hopes of persuading them over. For me, against that was that was biggest my biggest involvement in line is sort of Trump and the Trump Republicans. Um, but even if there's no common ground to be had, you have to understand who is then going to be your enemy. If we're talking about actual alt right, actual Nazis. Right. That's just Sun Tzu. Like the more you can understand of your enemy and how they think and work, the better. That wasn't my primary approach with Republicans and Republican voters. My primary approach was to say, let me talk to you. Let me understand what's happening. Let me hear what information I disagree with. And also tell me where my blind spots are and confirmation biases and what I'm missing in my information funnel, which isn't perfect either. And so you always have to risk, if you try and change someone's mind, you have to risk having your mind changed. And so um, it's a, it was a tough process in part because, you know, sometimes I could draw the ire of the furthest left extremes um, of our party while I was also, you know, <laughs> more frequently drawing the ire of, of the right or the far right. Um, but it was really worth it if you're trying to do good in, a, in, a, in an environment that is this kind of polarized 
really progressing with as open a heart with as little defensiveness as possible and and genuine curiosity, which I think is the primary and important trait for being a writer. That's how I approach things with Rick uh, Wilson, with with Bill Crystal, with with those guys. You know, it was they were exceptional. I mean, I did I didn't have a hiccup with them. Bill let me pretty much do anything I wanted at the bulwark. You know, Rick, I placed a Black Lives Matter commercial with him early on when and he was, you know, very open to that. And some of it was when I when I after in the wake of some of the protests around police brutality, very open to conversations. It's very much a two way street with us. Um, I'm glad those guys made a lot of money. Um, You know, I think they they look, they had spines of steel. They were a line item on Donald Trump's, you know, morning briefing was was the Lincoln Project. And they were running a, basically a full psyops campaign against the most powerful human being on the planet. I mean, so their aim in the Lincoln Project was was a little bit less sort of converting and softening hearts and minds, but they were running an unbelievable operation and it took an incredible amount of courage. Um, and so I tried to meet people where they were and I and and those my you know, and you know, because we brought them across into the fold. I mean, we had to build a coalition on our side, right, of people who were varying levels from moderates to, to further left on the Democratic side. But it was also important to me that all of our messaging, that we could all be in touch, that people could understand and amplify all of these efforts because we needed everyone. We needed our tanks. We needed our soldiers. We needed our knife fighters. We needed everybody in this threat. And had we been, I mean, I really believe if we'd come up, we won by what, 104,000 votes. I think if we'd come up 50,000 shy, we would have been close enough for him to cheat, steal the election. And I don't know that we would have had another free election. I felt like the stakes were that high. And so I wasn't applying anyone who was coming on and able to aim the same direction as me. I was trying to welcome into the fold, work with them and give them as much expertise, resources and support as I could. It's definitely there was a chance that we we look back now and I I said this to you before you know a few times but like I I don't want to know what would have happened if you and I and Grant and uh, the entire coalition and everybody else, if we didn't do anything you know what I mean and it's it's overwhelming to see how many people the uh, countless ads uh, that you produced uh, it's beyond dozens I'm pretty sure it's hundreds um, and so you know <laughs> with everything uh, under the I mean like there were just random there were ads that you had you, you're like here's this and it just like magically would appear online and go viral and it, it just was it was so beyond helpful and it was it was <laughs> I can tell you it was priceless for, for for most groups. I know everybody at the Democratic Coalition, everybody at Midas Touch, everybody. At, I mean, like the the key core groups, the the big activist groups for the Democratic Party now um, all all love you. And, and I think it's for good reason. Um, and, and we I, I think I agree with you. We, we almost lost our, our democracy. And, and, you know, speaking about losing things um, now that. President Biden is finally in the White House and uh, T, you know, his Twitter is is gone forever. Um, or I, I guess I can call him Trump, but it still gives me cringes. Uh, what do you see as like the next big thing for the forces of like facts versus conspiracy theories? Uh, look, the biggest way that I see 
us pulling back from the brink um, of this is to have a focus within the party where we need to be focused much more on intentions and outcomes rather than on uh, language and permission structures. Meaning we spend a lot of time figuring out what we're allowed to say, phrases might be wrong, um, who's allowed to say what, that's the permission structure aspect. And part of it for me, what I love so much about Biden is He's, he's old fashioned enough that he didn't know how to talk about race in a way that was politically correct. He only knew how to talk about it from his heart. And so he might blunder. He might use the wrong word from what we would consider within our respective bubbles here and then. But there's no questioning his heart on that matter. And I think the more that we can try to find leeway, not just with race, with gender, with the environment, with everything that we're dealing and to really focus in concrete terms on what are the outcomes and I think I think that a lot of the issues um, are being when we have stuff when we're dealing with stuff that falls under the banner of you know let's call it cultural appropriation the stuff that's sort of like the academic um, you know predominant you know what people call the so-called elites dealing around cultural issues that it tends to be a lot of fire and ire on the surface and one of the things that I realized was all of that is noise being made so that the country can be looted. Right. And I don't by that, I don't mean to imply that people aren't in genuine pain, that people don't get triggered, that there's not a lot of trauma, that there's not a need for more sensitivity, because I believe all those things. But what I believe more than any of that is, is that we need to come out and look at we're talking about race. For me, I'd love to talk about drug sentencing. I'd love to talk about the prison industrial complex. I'd like to talk about how I think it's one out of three African-American boys born today will wind up in prison, the unbroken line between from slavery to Jim Crow to the prison industrial complex. Let's start to make concrete change and say, look, let's not worry as much about how everyone's talking. If we're rowing the right direction, let's make corrections. Let's speak honestly. And let's go fix some fundamental underlying problems that we haven't done. And I think that part of that in, 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 the, in the Democratic Party is um, not to talk too much about race, but I think that we have failed to properly represent the African-American community in a lot of ways. And I always point to, I point to Cape Fear, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a long held, um, it might be apocryphal, but it's a long held belief that when, when um, prisoners uh, get out of jail and they, they turn against, uh, they, they go after their defense attorney, not the prosecutors. They go after the person who is supposed to take care of them. And I think that some of the anger that we've seen in the backlash for Democrats from the white working class, right? Some of the, the, the votes that we lost young African-American men was we've been taking those votes for granted for a long time, right? We've been taking and and I think that there's some there's some awareness of that that's happening. And if we can focus on making concrete change, on strengthening unions, on fixing some of the underlying you know, actual hardcore systemic problems that undergird everything will do a lot better. Um, but it's very important that we that we get to work and that we actually produce things. We need to produce, you know, better healthcare for more people. We need to get after some of these problems that are in fact systemic that virtually no one I think can disagree with. Um, and so that's how I see us moving forward. I, I see us moving forward with the best of intentions and trying to fix and provide actual outcomes. If we can change outcomes, everything changes for people. And we haven't done the best job at that. We've had $50 trillion with a T 
moved from the bottom 90% to the top 1% in the last 40 years. So that's not, the last 40 years has not been all Republican presidents. So we have work to do and we have to deliver. And the, the less that we sort of talk and police each other and the more we roll up our sleeves and get to it, I think the better we'll be and the more votes we'll win and the more we can keep um, an, an ascendant president, you know, based on these politics of division and polarization and this. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Authoritarian grasp at bay. Yeah, and we it, it's it's interesting to see with him off of Twitter how all of these people my my interactions on Twitter have gone up fifty percent five zero um, in the past huh. month or so, and so we're talking about half a billion impressions in January. That's the highest month I've ever had. So he's removed. People can then support more, and they're not distracted, and also they can focus on. Members of Congress who are absolutely corrupt, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, it, it, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we talked about um, is the Capitol riots. But I wanted to get a different kind of take, not like, you know, why did it happen? What, like, this, this is something that actually is imperative that any Democrat listening needs to listen to what he has to say here to this question. Um, you know, I, I, I want to ask you about uh, anyways, the Capitol riots. Republicans are trying to move on like that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to act like this isn't a thing. Um, they're trying to act like, oh, somebody's words in the past don't matter. It, it, but we're talking about, you know, two weeks ago uh, was when President Biden was sworn in. So we're talking about a month ago or so was the insurrection. Um, and it's not time to move on because we haven't even investigated everything. So how should Democrats counter that message so that no one can move on so that we can actually focus on this. I know we have the impeachment trial coming up, um, but how do we make it so the focus stays on the actual riot, how that led to that, and, and how, how, how can we stay focused on that and not get, get people distracted by whatever Republicans are trying to pull into the mix? Well, I think, first of all, we make the Marjorie Taylor Greens the face of their party. Look how effective they did that with us. They took the most extreme statements and most extreme members of our caucus. Right. The biggest caucus in Congress is the new Democratic caucus, right? Pro-capitalist moderate caucus. They made, you know, the, a ton of Americans associate the Democratic Party with, with the furthest left. Um, and by that, I don't mean remotely to compare our furthest left elected officials with their furthest right. There's no comparison to me, despite the fact that I have disagreements with those members of our party who are the furthest left. But um, I think she should. I think she should be the face of the party. I think they should own it. Um, and you know, there was something they have had. They have failed. I think we should also push it from a position of strength, which is to say, if you literally cannot disavow people. Who, who have a stated belief that we should have put a bullet in the head of the speaker house of the in the head of the speaker of the house of the United States of America you lack the courage and the conviction and the strength to be able to lead you just do 
It's a, if you're that terrified of Trump's base, if you're that terrified of what her Twitter followers or random conspiracy theorists will say, we understand that. We understand that you're scared of that, that you're scared of being primary, that you're talking to reporters off the record. That's not what we're looking for in statesmen and stateswomen. That's not who we're looking to lead. That's not what we're looking to hold nuclear football. And so, and the other thing I think that's very important is there's a very emotional piece of that that sometimes we forget. We get very wonky and we start to bust out the spreadsheets. And so we're, we're talking about this, you know, insurrection and insurrection and Trump's inciting of insurrection. It's also incredibly important at a gut level to talk about his um, dereliction of duty, right? For days, he said nothing. For 90 minutes, they, people were in there. And look, these reps, a lot of these reps are my friends. They told me about, you know, hearing, you know, people being one door away from thinking they would be killed or lynched. We had people with zip ties. There was people in there frantically calling, you know, the, the secretary of the army, trying to call anybody. Donald Trump was nowhere, aside from appearing at one point to tell those people how great they were and how much he loved them. People who wore six million weren't, wasn't enough. And I'm, I'm not quick to moral outrage. Um, but I have to tell you, seeing people with Holocaust leisure wear parading through the Capitol building, you know, the Confederate flag that didn't get within five. So for me, what a lot of this is, is to talk about the gut punch of Benghazi and why I think it was able to have such an outsized effect through a lot of disinformation was that what actually happened there was awful. There was people who needed help, who were tortured and killed and help didn't get to them. That happened in our own state capital. So we can talk about incitement to insurrection. I think it's very important to talk about that the commander in chief of the United States of America did nothing while his vice president gallows were erected to hang him, while members were in fear for their lives, while Jason Crow was you know, relying on his military experience. He did nothing. And there's a gut punch reality to that to think, look, whether you know his own party, his own number two, his own members in there, and that dereliction of duty it's it's Benghazi times a thousand. It's it's emotional. It's impactful, and I think in some ways it's 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 an enormous enormous horror that we witnessed. I didn't expect it. I I mean, like we were ready for any. As you know, we were ready for anything, and I I really wanted to take a break after the election, you know. And then it was another thing, and then another thing. And we realized we're not going to be able to take a break till January 20th. And we still haven't taken a break, which is fine. Uh, but it's just it's just, you know, it's weird. Yes. Yeah. I I part of me knew. And it's funny because one of the things I say, you know, one of my closest friends here, born again, Christian, son of a missionary. He's the guy who went in both times to the polling booth, not making up his mind and said, you know what? Screw it. I'm voting for Trump. We've had so many conversations about it. And. One of the things I think about him is, look, he's a canary of a particular coal mine. This is a close friend of mine. He lives out here in L.A. He's got friends who are gay, like he's, you know, tons of friends who are liberal. It's foolish for me to just dismiss him as saying, well, you're an ignorant canary from an irrelevant coal mine. Right. That doesn't make sense. Right. When some um, black men were speaking on behalf of Trump from time to time, people, there was an outcry. And I was like, hang on, we should listen. Right. And sure enough, there was more we needed to hear because we didn't do there were some surprising results from younger African-American male voters. Right. We need to always listen and lean in. The thing that I've been telling uh, some of my people who are across the aisle for me still was I'm also a canary in a particular coal mine. And part of it was I don't think 
like part of my Jewish genes somewhere buried deep in there had a reaction as a canary in the coal mine with the energy and the propagandizing um, and the, the sort of miasma of corruption and divisiveness around Trump that in me, my particular awareness was this, this could literally end with people in Holocaust gear and Confederate flags sort of, it, it was not an image that was beyond the, the reach of my imagination. Um, I just felt it that way. And, you know, one of the ways I, I keep thinking about America, gosh, if we can get back to this, is that, you know, aside, again, I always exclude the most extreme members, right or left, right? The people way out on the, you know, who, but if we can have an understanding in some ways that the best societies are when we all are aware of different problems, right? We're aware of different we have different awarenesses. Um, there's some people who key to threats. The, the left certainly doesn't always get it right, either historically, you know, in the 20th century or here in this country. If we can have some version of respect of people who think differently, approach topics differently, if we can get around this rabid, you know, noxious polarization and start to understand that, that some of us see threats in different, in different ways, and if we can talk about it civilly at a point that we can still engage with words... We don't have to get all the way to the edge like this, you know, um, and I a lot of my frustration and a lot of my, you know, crazed manic energy and putting so much, so much attention into this, you know, pro bono for the last four years. I mean, we put out 200 commercials in the last seven months, you know, many, many of them with you. You guys were, you know, my most trusted uh, you know, partners. I think we did the most stuff together in a lot of ways. But part of it was was just that frustration of not being able to engage in the kind of civil back and forth I usually could because I was just watching people slip out of out of the grasp. And I I tried to go forward to them and meet them where they were to have the conversations. And they're tough conversations. I think I really hope we can find ways to lower the bar and figure out what's beneath things and not to, you know, how, how do you think you're going to change someone's mind if you're not talking to them regularly, right? Like, there's tons of people out there who still believe that the election was stolen. If we don't engage and talk to them, we can't, we're, we're handcuffed to them. We're, we're married to them and them with us. There's no going forward without the 75 million Americans who voted for Trump. Um, we have to figure out ways that we can talk and work things out with words at an earlier level before we ever see something like what we saw on January 6th. Well, I've I've promised that I wouldn't talk just about politics, so we'll, we can move <laughs> on from politics. And you you do have a new book that uh, just came out, I, I believe, last week on Tuesday, right? Uh, and it's called That's right. Prodigal Son. It's the sixth book in the Orphan X series. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, so for the uninitiated, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the premise of the series and its main character, Evan Smoke? Well, I, I guess, yeah. it, does he go by that name? I, I don't want to, that's his origin name, I guess, uh, is what it would be called. Well, it's, it is the, it's the Orphan X series. And so Evan Smoke, my main character, was pulled out of a foster home at the age of 12. And he was trained off the books to be an assassin for the United States government, to go places that we weren't allowed to go and do things in violation of international law. A very, very deep black program. And at a certain point, you know, he, he was raised with his moral compass intact. It was very important to me that it's, it's, it's not a, a, a wildly um, 
new trope to have this sort of child assassin who's trained. And what was really important to me was to make sure that it didn't represent the sort of absolute awfulness. And so when he's pulled out of this foster home, which was pretty rough, he was the smallest kid. The guy who pulls him out, his handler and the CIA handler, a former CIA handler, says to him, the hard part won't be making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And so him being pulled out of this and trained is in some ways also the best thing that ever happened to him because this handler loved him like a son and raised him with his moral compass intact, which in some ways was a disservice. It would have been easier for him to be a true believer, right? It's always harder as we're learning and talking about here when you're engaging in the murky gray of actually trying to get things done and, and engage with reality. And so at a certain point, he flees the program it's, it just collides with him. And so he's off the radar, right? The government, should they ever find him, want him dead. He doesn't just know where all the bodies are buried. He buried half of them himself. And so essentially, he's, he has a 1-800 number now, one 855 nowhere that readers can call uh, in real life. And people in truly desperate situations, when they're being terrorized by a you know a tyrant or a bully or an abuser, and there's nowhere that they can turn, can call this number. And he's essentially a highly trained black operator, um, black ops operator, um, who operates as a pro bono assassin and fixer for people who have nowhere else to turn. Um, and a lot of this was, I think he was the smallest kid. And I make a lot of that. And part of why Jack chose him, his handlers, he says to him, you're the smallest kid. You never knew your mom. You never knew your dad. You know what it's like to feel powerless. And I wanted someone who will never forget that, no matter how big you get, no matter what kind of training I give you. You know, he wasn't the strongest guy. He's not the suavest guy like Bond, right? He's not the biggest guy like Jack Reacher. Um, and so for him, once he hit his limit, you know, operating as an assassin for the U.S. government, part of what he has to engage in is the one place he could find purity was when people are in real human suffering at the hands of somebody else who's more powerful than them. And that's the part of himself and his child he can, he can relate to. And so the phone rings, and it's usually someone in desperate need. And at the beginning of Prodigal Son, the phone rings, and a woman on the other end of the phone says, Evan, it's your mother. So he's never known his mother. He didn't, you know, never knew his father. And he's not sure if this is a ruse to draw him out, whether from the government or he's got, you know, he has enemies on, you know, six continents. And so he goes into to explore what happens. And the story basically rips him back to his past. It's the first time we see into the foster home and his upbringing. It takes him all the way back. He's got survivor's guilt. He's got shame over growing up in that kind of poverty that he has to contend with. But at the same time, the intrigue escalates to the highest levels of power. There's, you know, in Silicon Valley, in the military, technological, uh, you know, um, industrial complex, and so what I wanted was a lot of heart and a lot of, of that feeling that he has of engaging and helping the underdog against immense powers that be, but at the same time, um, having that heart balanced with a lot of action and suspense. And At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible 
Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What I hope is a pretty thrilling read for people. What inspired you to write about an orphan in the first place? Why, why is it that the smoke's central identity, why is that smoke's central identity, and how does it connect to the plots you weave around him? Huh. Well, the books are very much about, it's so weird, you know, I get, I get clearer and clearer about why I write what I write. I don't, I don't tend to think of a theme or something I'm working on and then figure out how to apply a story. I get the story first and then I kind of start to decipher it. And I started this series when I was right on the eve of turning 40. Um, and what's interesting is, is I pick up the book series right where Evan is at a point where he has already left the orphan program and he's helping people um, on his own as the nowhere man on the run. And it's a weird place to start the series, right? But part of what he's doing is he's breaking out of, he has the 10 assassins commandments that were handed down to him. Never make it personal, right? How you do anything is how you do everything. Master your surroundings, question orders. And so I start the series right at the point that he's sort of shattering through this old perfectionistic, meticulous, he's got OCD, everything is clean and rigid and perfectionist. And he's trying to learn in some ways the strange language of intimacy um, that he never was raised with because he was raised off the books. And so I was writing about a character who's letting go of the rules that have always governed his life as he's seeking to embrace a new set of rules, uh, which is, you know, something that I think in a lot of ways I was contending with myself at the age of 40 of me saying, you know, what's it going to be? Do I just, you know, write another 20 novels and 50 comics and two movies and 20 TV shows and then that's it? Am I going to do something different? What's deeper and more meaningful? And it sort of coincided, you know, one of the, the, the taglines of Orphan X and what he does is he asks for no money, no credit, and no permission. And I say, if you need none of those things, you can move the world. And bizarrely, that's the approach that my core team and I took to politics. It, it's like this really bizarre overlap that happened. So it was like right at the time that I was starting to, to kind of shatter through a lot of the first, you know, what I hope is, is the first half of my life, if I'm, if I'm lucky enough to live that one time over, some of those rules and strictures that have governed my life, figuring out new, a new version of meaning and figuring out also how to try to engage in something as complicated and dirty and corrupt and at times dangerous as a political landscape is polarized. And I found that much like Evan, who's the nowhere man, the only way I could do anything that might be remotely useful was if I, you know, took, you know, no credit, no money and asked for no permission and just did it. Because if I was waiting to be financed by the DCCC, I'd still be waiting for the first $2,000 to make a commercial, right? Like, you know, we had to go out and build everything. And, uh, this coalition, everyone who's listening, you know, everyone who was part of this coalition, people who were signing up and phone banking, people who made commercials, right? I, we pulled in actors and directors who, who volunteered their time. There was, um, you know, people feet on the ground, all of that. You can't get stuff done if you're doing it in, in something that's this complicated. You can't get stuff done for the right reasons if you need all the credit, if you need to be paid. And if, and frankly, if you wait to go through the, the permission structures of something that's this entrenched, you just can't get wait and get permission for any of that. You'll never get a sign off. And so I went out and did it in this really weird way that has this mirror with, um, it's funny, I've never talked about this really publicly. It's, but of course I would, I would have this conversation 
with you, which makes the most sense because, you know, we were we were kind of in the foxhole together for a lot of it. But it was a really weird confluence between those two parts of my life, my fictional life and then this pro bono effort that was, you know, towards the end was like, you know, 18 hours a day, you know, for the last much of a year. Yeah. I, I, so he was just as uh, before uh, uh, the next question. So he was recruited as an assassin, maybe partly because of that no intimacy, making it easier for him to kill. Yeah, there's no one. Well, there's no one to miss him. I mean, he was recruited to be an expendable, basically an expendable weapon. Right. right. You can take someone, you drop them in some country we're not supposed to be. He tries to kill, let's say, a general or a you know politician who's a proponent of nuclear proliferation. If he gets captured, he doesn't know anything. He's fully siloed. He can get tortured to death. He's got no information to give up, and he's got no one who wants him, um, and no one to miss him. He's disposable. He's fully expendable. Um, and his one human connection is from Jack, his handler. Without giving away any spoilers, because I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but can you tell our listeners what – uh, the new book is, I guess, uh, what it builds off of, what makes it stand out in the book series. Um, you know, it's it's obviously predicated on the, the orphan trained to be a world-class assassin, but, like, what separates it from the uh, other five books in the series? I think the piece that's so different is that phone ringing. Instead of a desperate soul on the other end of the phone, when it's a woman claiming to be his mother, it pulls him back. And this is the first time I wrote scenes and showed readers and brought them into the foster home. I've kind of, I've referred to it glancingly, but I have whole scenes now that start to piece that together. And part of it for me was I wanted him to go back and have to piece together those feelings of vulnerability, right? Those feelings of being, of just not being wanted to not even know what it, what it might be like to want to be wanted. And so with, when this woman claiming to be his mom appears, it's sort of, it's a tour that pulls him back through his past. And so for me, the most important scenes in this are when he's writing, you know, when he goes back to encounter those parts of himself and he has to face that shame that he has. He's got survivor's guilt because most of the other kids from that foster home, all of whom were bigger, tougher, are in jail, right? They overdose, they're dead. Um, and so he's he's really the, the the shining survivor. And despite the fact that he's done terrible things, he's got survivor's guilt. And he has to kind of contend with that. And so there's a real counterbalance between that personal story and then this 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 you know unescalating intrigue that involves the military industrial complex um, and sort of bigger and bigger um, um, stakes and sequences, among which you know he breaks into. You know, he, he, he talks his way into a giant, um, crazy um, Dionysian party at a, at a big CEO visionary in Silicon Valley. We go into that world. He breaks onto a military, you know, a top secret Air Force base where they do all sorts of um, elaborate drone testing. And the book is very much about ethics. It's about the ways that we're, the military is trying to program AI. Now they're programming AI to have an ethical adapter literally to take, to try, to try and remove humans even more from the hunt kill cycle. And, you know, so there's a lot of that for Evan himself, because part of, I think the cost that he bears as a former assassin is the guilt that he feels right. And, and the pain and the trauma that he carries around that, even though he deals with that exceptionally well, that's part of the cost that we ask as part of the terrible cost that we ask of our men and women in uniform 
police officers. That's a horrible, terrible responsibility. That's a, it's an awesome weight that's on their shoulders to do that. And if we remove that and we can just program that in ones and zeros, you know, it makes war mighty easy to wage, you know, and, you know, as, as Don Rumsfeld once said, you know, when you see war, you know, getting this profitable, you're going to see more of it. Well, the easier that war gets, the more we're going to see of it too. Um, and so it's this really weird thing where the trauma and suffering of our most courageous people on the front lines is almost one of the, the the moral costs that they bear for us to be able to wage war and to to not get too distant from the horrible human cost of it. Now, since our listeners probably just stopped the podcast to run to Audible and get Prodigal Son, I, I don't know how many people are going to hear this last question, but let's go for it anyhow. Uh, I, I read that you had you, you were we were almost working with Bradley Cooper on this to play Smoke, and and then you decided to move this into a television series possibly now what what is next for the orphan x series and for for your fans and and the, and the new fans that you've made today i just um literally handed in the pilot i've been i've been working on um and what the hope is is that we could is to do it with a, as a streamer where i have a little bit more elbow room to throw right where each book can form the spine of let's say a 10 episode season um at, at a streaming service. So I, I have a little bit more room to unfold the stories, you know, to change them. You know, obviously we have to blow them out. We have to make them work because television, uh, like film, it's a different muscle. Um, and so that's, that's what I'm working on there. I'm very excited about that. I have another movie. Uh, I have a movie coming out from Netflix soon, uh, starring Jason Momoa, uh, called Sweet Girl. Uh, I co-wrote it with Philip Eisner, who's a brilliant screenwriter, good friend of mine. He wrote Event Horizon, uh, among other things. Um, and so that movie should be coming out soon. And we have another movie in the works that we just sold. Um, and that's called Sabine. And we're just, we just managed to snare the director of a wonderful Spanish language, uh, Netflix show called money heist. Um, and so that's where I'm on that front on the, on the kind of writing front. And then, you know, with politics, I'm still certainly, um, staying in and trying to trying to help and be helpful where where i can um you know for people people like you who were who were there all the way through the process and and the reps uh and members of the party and the house and the senate for anything that people need on that front as well so uh a, a real last question what was it like to work with me i'm kidding uh we're out of time no <laughs> we we had we had lots of fun times and as i had a disclaimer obviously um, we've worked together extensively. Me asking him to do a podcast has nothing to do with anything, and his, his involvement in our group or anything like that. I asked him because I wanted to do it, and obviously, as you've heard from the podcast, it was well worth it. Uh, I, I guess what's the what's the last like parting words you have in regards to just in general? Uh, I like to to leave episodes a lot of times with some positive talk. Um, What's some positive words of wisdom you have for what's next for our country and for you in general? Like what, what, give me some, tell me something positive to end on. I would say that the things that we're looking at now, um, all these painful conversations about, you know, race and democracy and voter suppression and everything that's been torn out, all these, you know, let's say a lot of the toxins have been forced to the surface None of them, we wouldn't be having any of these conversations if we were a month into Hillary Clinton's second term of the presidency. And so one of the things that I think about is that 
that as uh, grueling and bruising as this presidency was, the, the Donald Trump presidency, it can still be one of the best things that ever happened to America. And the only, and if we respond to it in the right way and the power to have it be that for us, for our kids, for future generations is in our hands right now. It's an opportunity. And how we respond to this. Right. An opportunity, not a, a, a failure. We embrace what it is because it is what it is. It's not going to change. It's what happened. It's, and uh, thankfully, Thankfully, we had you on the front line, true patriot, one of the most hit, the hidden gem of the Democratic Party, um, who is not going to be not so not so hidden anymore. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's it's definitely like I wish that we could have uh, cloned you. I'm not a big fan of cloning, but I would be with you, and uh, we could use a lot more of you with guts and also the smarts in the in the Democratic Party. And you've helped me, um, you know be able to talk to some people more generally and not, uh, you know, with as much, much fire. So I'm very grateful for your friendship and everything that you do for uh, our country and the world. And and so it's very, uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I, I want everybody to go into the link, uh, the link in the notes um, for the episode. And I want you to buy his book right now, like right now. Um, because I, I think that there's a lot of parallels between um, what's in the book and what we've fought for over the past uh, four or five years. And so um, I, I think once you get to reading it, it it'll be uh, you'll be able to make that link there, and especially between uh, the, the fact that, you know, for, for a while um, or for the beginning of it, Greg had to do this, you know, by himself and, and he would talk to friends and get him involved and do things that was tangible work that would touch hundreds of millions of people across the world uh, and change the narrative and, and everything about an entire day for the president of the United States and Congress. Um, so phenomenal work effort. Um, one of the hardest working, and I don't say this about anybody, one of the hardest working people I've ever known. And uh, proud to know you. Uh, so, Greg Hurwitz, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, congratulations on the success with the book. Uh, I hope that it builds from here. And uh, we really look forward to seeing your, your two movies coming up and then also the TV series. Obviously, we look forward to, to seeing that once that's developed and, and uh, done. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks again to Greg Hurwitz for doing the show. You can follow him at Greg Hurwitz online. That's Greg with two G's. Thanks again to the best producer in the business, Mr. Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. And for more episodes, and there will be a lot of more episodes coming up, you can go to DworkinReport.com. You can also go to Patreon.com slash DworkinReport for starting our subscriber service again. So subscribe. We need your help to make sure we keep this going as long as possible and expand from here. Do more frequent episodes. Thank you again for your support. Keep resisting 